0: So here's how a lawyer meets with his client when his client is a prisoner at Guantanamo. There's a little hut with a metal table.
1: He's brought out of the box and shackled to an eyebolt in the floor. Uh, with his back to the door, he's forbidden
0: to face the natural light. Jeremy Goulis of the University of Chicago represents a few detainees at Guantanamo, and he says that to understand that thing about the natural light, you have to understand that the detention facilities at Guantanamo were designed to be the perfect interrogation chambers. And so, anything the prisoner wants, including sunlight, he's only going to get with the permission of his interrogators, as a reward for cooperating. And anything can be used that way.
1: Uh, male, uh, another another lawyer, uh, discovered when he first got there that his his client, uh, a middle aged gentleman with five children, who's he's a London businessman who was picked up in the Gambia. Uh, and he wasn't getting any mail from his family, and he couldn't understand it because he felt abandoned and alone by his from his five children. And the lawyer had the presence of mind to make inquiries to see what was the matter and discovered that 16 letters uh, were in the military's possession that they had refused to deliver. And when he, they did finally deliver them, someone uh, uh, had actually taken the time to redact out the words from the children, uh, uh, we miss you, Daddy, we love you, Daddy. We're thinking of you. That is apparently not right because it 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 disrupts the sense of isolation uh, and despair that they are trying to cultivate.
0: Prisoners feel despair. They'll cooperate. They'll talk. They'll tell us all the dangerous things they know. That's the idea. Let's make them feel hopeless. Ever since President Bush announced the global war on terror, we've been told that this is a different kind of war, with different rules. The battlefield isn't a jungle in Asia or a beach in France. It's everywhere. Soldiers aren't guys in uniform. They could be anybody. And prisoners of war are different, too. So dangerous, we're told, that we keep them in an offshore facility and as close to total secrecy as possible to interrogate whenever we want, however long we want, using methods we have never approved for other wars. And one thing that's, um... What's just weird about Guantanamo is that in all of these years that it's been going, why haven't we seen more of these guys on radio and TV? Roughly 400 of them have been released, right? About a year ago on our radio show, we were talking about this, and we realized that none of us had ever read or heard any interview with any of them. And so we decided that we were going to try to get some of these guys onto the air. And, um... The show that we put together and put on the air a year ago with those interviews just won a big award, the Peabody Award. And so because of that, we bring you that show again today, updated here and there where the facts have changed a little bit. And so today you're going to hear from two of these Guantanamo detainees who've been released. And I believe you're going to be very surprised at what they're like. We're also going to try to explain once and for all what all of these kind of technical sounding things about hearings and rights and new rules of war that um, we all hear in the news from time to time, what it all adds up to. It's This American Life from Chicago Public Radio, distributed by Public Radio International. I'm Ira Glass. Our guide for all of this is Jack Hitt. Here he is. As best as they can tell, Badr
2: Zaman Badr and his brother were imprisoned in Guantanamo for three years for telling a joke. Actually, for telling two jokes. They ran a satire magazine in Pakistan that poked fun at corrupt clerics sort of the Pashto edition of The Onion. The first joke that got him into trouble was when they published a poem about a politician called I Am Glad to Be a Leader. Here's Badr.
3: Let me translate a few lines for you. Sure. Uh, Before I was so thin and weak, and now I have a big stomach. Uh, Stuff like that. (laughs) Uh, Yeah.
2: So the guy with the big stomach called up Badr and his brother. He threatened them, and as best as they can tell, told authorities that they were linked to al-Qaeda, which landed them in Guantanamo, and which leads us to the second joke. This one was in an issue of Bodder's Magazine that came out in the 90s after our government set a $5 million reward for Osama bin Laden. Bodder's Magazine issued its own bounty for the capture of an American leader.
3: President Bill Clinton, giving the details how to identify that he has uh, blue eyes and his clean shaven, and the most important thing is that he a recent scandal is going on between Clinton and Monica Lewinsky. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if someone finds that man, he will be awarded 5 million Afghani. Afghan currency which was equal to 113 dollars at that time. So it's impossible <laughs> to yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: In Guantanamo, were you interrogated about your Clinton satire
3: exactly they were serious if we really want to kill uh, president kelton uh, and we said no that's not that was only a satire and it's only a way of expression it's allowed it's protected in your country in american law
2: how many times were you interrogated you think about about the clinton so, article.
3: Many times, many times. I, me and my brother, each, each one of us, have been interrogated more than 150 times.
2: So after hearing the punchline explained 150 times, we finally got the joke and sent Badr and his brother home. It had been three years since the Pakistani army surrounded their house in Peshawar, came into their living room, which is lined with wall-to-wall bookcases, and arrested them. That's Botter's version of why we jailed him. Here's President Bush's.
4: These are people that have got scooped up off a of battlefield, attempting to kill U.S. troops. And uh, uh, I want to make sure before they're released that they don't come back to kill again.
2: The administration has never wavered on this point. Here's Dick Cheney on Guantanamo. The
5: people that are there are people we picked up on the battlefield, primarily in Afghanistan. They're terrorists. They're bomb makers. They're facilitators of terror. They're members of al-Qaeda and the Taliban.
2: We're told over and over that these prisoners are so terrible that we need an offshore facility away from U.S. law to hold them. But then there's Badr. And every day, more stories like his are coming out. And they raise the question, is Guantanamo a camp full of terrorists or a camp full of mistakes? In a new study from Seton Hall's Law School, researchers simply went to the trouble of reading the 517 Guantanamo case files released by the Pentagon. Here's what they found. Only 5% of our detainees in Guantanamo were scooped up by American troops, on the battlefield or anywhere else. 5%. The rest, we never saw them fighting. And here's something else. Only 8% of the detainees in Guantanamo are classified by the Pentagon as Al-Qaeda fighters. In fact, Michael Dunleavy, head of interrogations at Guantanamo, complained in 2002 that he was receiving too many, quote, Mickey Mouse prisoners. In 2004, the New York Times did a huge investigation, interviewing dozens of high-level military intelligence and law enforcement officials in the U.S., Europe, and the Middle East. There was a surprising consensus that out of nearly 600 men at Guantanamo, the number who could give us useful information about al-Qaeda was, quote, only a relative handful. Some put the number at about a dozen. Others, more than two dozen. The Seaton Hall study might help explain that. It revealed that 86% of the detainees were handed over to us by Pakistan or the Northern Alliance. And some were handed over to us by a new method. Here's Bhattar.
3: Actually, in our interrogation, the our American interrogators have been telling us that they have paid a lot of money. Uh, to those who handed over us to Americans.
6: The problem was we were offering bounties, you know, five or $10,000. Al-Qaeda brought more than Taliban did. And so, okay, fine, here's your money. You know, take them to Gitmo. That's Rear Admiral John Hudson,
2: the Navy's top lawyer. He was the Judge Advocate General until 2000. He says, essentially, we bought Badr and a whole lot of other prisoners.
6: And when you you look at the economy at that part of the world, you know, that really is kind of a king's ransom.
2: When the Pentagon started offering these rewards, large fees for top leaders like bin Laden and smaller payouts for lower-level terrorists and Taliban, it seemed like a good idea. They didn't think it would lead to innocent people being turned in. Here's Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld in 2001, just two months after September 11th.
5: We have large rewards out, and our hope uh, is that the incentive, through the great principle of University of Chicago economics, uh, incentivize a large number of people to begin crawling through those tunnels and caves looking for the bad folks.
2: We all know this is a new war, with new rules. But what were the old rules? Well, one had to do with POWs. The military has always known that all kinds of prisoners get picked up in the fog of war. So it was important to get those numbers down to just the real POWs, since troops on the move didn't want to be burdened with looking after lots and lots of captives. This problem had been more or less solved by the old Geneva Conventions, which required a, quote, competent tribunal. It sounds crazy, A kind of impromptu court hearing right after a battle but that is exactly what used to happen and typically some 75 to 90 percent of the people scooped up would be sent home in the gulf war of 1991 we captured 982 people released 750 of them right away and the remainder were pow's like in the old war movies they gave name rank and serial number and they got certain things everything from a pledge that they wouldn't be tortured to a promise that they'd be released once the war ended, and even the right to send letters home. Here's Rear Admiral Hudson, the Navy's top lawyer.
6: And those were some of the things that uh, now Attorney General Gonzalez referred to as as being uh, quaint and outdated. Uh, you know, you get athletic uniforms. You get uh, you, know, you get to a certain amount of money paid in Swiss francs, I believe. Um, you know, and and those things probably are. Minute, you get you get paid as a POW. Yeah, it's it's a it's a very small amount of money, but you know, to go to the <laughs> the commissary and buy chewing gum and cigarettes, kind of thing. But uh-huh. and those things probably are uh, largely outdated. And and they and they are in some respects quaint. What happened though is by saying that the Geneva Conventions in those respects were quaint and outdated, they just threw the baby out with the bathwater.
2: This is a new kind of war, after all. And the administration made the argument that the Geneva Conventions apply only when you're fighting another country, a country with a uniformed army,
5: not when you're fighting terrorists. They do not apply where the individuals captured haven't deserved, haven't shown that they deserve those protections.
2: That's Brian Boyle. He was associate attorney general for President Bush when these decisions were made.
5: Uh, They did not legally qualify as uh, prisoners... Of war, because they are not fighting in uniform. Because they try to blend in with the civilian population. Because they try to take cover in civilian areas.
2: Haven't hasn't that been a problem for war for most of the 20th century, or or at least in the last couple of conflicts we've been in? I mean, is is rooting out Al Qaeda any harder, or how is it harder than rooting out Viet Cong in a local village?
5: Now I take the point. Uh, I guess the point I was making earlier is that I don't think you can conclude, given the nature of the enemy we're facing, that how we treat al-Qaeda operatives that we're able to capture is going to make any difference at all in how they would treat uh, American personnel in their custody.
6: It wouldn't make a difference at all. You know, th- that argument can really take you to some dark places, I think. Here's Rear Admiral Hudson, if, if we pick and choose, then other countries can pick and choose whether they're going to uh, apply the Geneva Conventions. And, uh, you know, that is a slippery slope that Secretary Powell and others uh, did not want us to go down uh, because they're looking over the horizon. You know, they know that this isn't the last war we're going to fight. Uh, you know, it's not even the next to last war we're going to fight.
2: This quarrel about the Geneva Conventions continued for three years and eventually got down to one very practical question. If you're a prisoner, and you're not protected by the Geneva Conventions, and you might be held indefinitely, could you at least make an appeal in a U.S. court? Here's Attorney General Alberto Gonzalez.
0: We really are, for all intents and purposes, at war. And so you need not provide access to counsel. You need not provide the ability to challenge their detention Uh, in a criminal court. Uh, It would be like saying that Germans that were captured during World War II uh, would have to be provided lawyers. The truth of the matter is the rules and procedures of our criminal justice system simply do not apply in this case.
2: And he's absolutely right about the Germans, except the Germans were covered by the Geneva Conventions. Finally, in 2004, the United States Supreme Court stepped in. It said, if prisoners aren't going to be covered by the Geneva Conventions, that's fine. But they couldn't be permitted to fall into a legal black hole, not protected by any law at all. They had to be given some way to challenge their detainment. It's one of the oldest rites in Western civilization, known as habeas corpus. Habeas corpus. It's a phrase we all know, but let's be honest, can't ever really remember what it means. It's not a trial or anything like one. It's more, well, primal. It's a hearing that commands the executive, in this case the president, to explain why he has jailed somebody. The idea dates back to 1215 England, when the nobles forced King John to sign the Magna Carta and agree to the Great Writ, later known as habeas corpus. In Latin, it means, show me the body. In other words, A neutral judge got to see the prisoner in person to check if he'd been tortured and then the judge had the power to require the king to explain, why is this guy jailed? All the executive had to do was answer with a convincing story and then the guy went back to the dungeon. It's a right so elemental that it's in Article 1 of the United States Constitution. It's one of the reasons we fought the Revolutionary War. And after the Supreme Court granted the detainees access to the courts, right away, President Bush started talking like a habeas-loving King John.
4: Yeah, look, um, we are a nation of laws, and, and to the extent that people say, well, America has no longer a nation of laws, it does hurt our reputation. But I think it's an unfair criticism. As you might remember, our courts have made a ruling. They looked at the jurisdiction, uh, the right of uh, people in Guantanamo to have habeas review. and. And so we're now complying with the court's decisions.
2: The administration quickly put together a kind of hearing based in part on the old Geneva Conventions hearing they'd abandoned. They called this hearing a combatant status review tribunal, or, in the elegant shorthand of the Pentagon, a CSRT. These new hearings have one oddity to them. The tribunal assumes all the evidence against the detainee is correct. If the detainee wants to prove them wrong, it'll be difficult because he's not allowed to see the evidence. It's classified. As a result, these hearings make strange reading. In many of them, there comes a moment in the dialogue like this one between detainee Abdal Malik and the judging panel. Malik. Regarding the charge that I worked at various guest houses and offices, what was the work? Judge. I cannot answer that. This is the first time we've seen the evidence. I know nothing more than what is written here. Malik. Same with me. I don't know anything about this. Regarding the charge that I was frequently seen at Osama bin Laden's side, who saw me? Judge. I don't know. Moloch. If it says, was frequently seen, you have to prove that. The Supreme Court had said that the detainees didn't deserve a full criminal trial, of course, only the basics of a fair hearing, which came down to three things, a lawyer, an impartial judge, and the chance to see the evidence against them. In practice, though... They get none of these. Beher Azmi is a lawyer who represents one of the detainees, but he couldn't attend his client's CSRT because actual lawyers
4: aren't allowed. They were each appointed a personal representative who's a a military officer um, who, uh, in in my case, met with my client the day before for 15 minutes, sat silent, and failed to present all of the exculpatory evidence in his file, which, of course, uh, any lawyer would have done not the personal representative.
2: And as for confronting the evidence, consider the case of Asmi's client, Murat Kurnaz, a Turkish citizen raised in Germany. The Pentagon accidentally declassified the file with all the secret evidence against him. And here's what's in it. Nothing.
6: The classified
4: file contains, um, the Washington Post wrote about it, six statements from military intelligence. That's really what the classified file is. You know, memos saying... This person was here, so-and-so witnessed him. In Kurnaz's case, there are five or six statements saying um, there's no evidence of any connection um, to al-Qaeda, the Taliban, uh, or threat to the United States. The Germans have concluded he's got no connection to al-Qaeda. There's no evidence linking him to the Taliban over and over and over again.
2: But here's the thing. At the hearing, nobody talks about any of that. His personal representative doesn't bring it up. The tribunal doesn't consider it, and Karnaz himself doesn't even know about it. He's declared an enemy combatant and sent back to his cell. But wait, there's more. The reason they give for holding him? A friend of his named Selçuk Belgen blew himself up as a suicide bomber in Turkey in 2003. That's two years after Karnas got picked up.
7: So
4: setting aside the sort of remarkable legal proposition that one could be detained indefinitely for what one's friend does, uh, it's factually preposterous and a sort of simple Google search or a call to the Germans would have revealed that his friend is alive and well in Bremen and under no suspicion of any such thing.
2: You heard that right. Kernaz was held in Guantanamo because two years after he got picked up, some guy he knows became a suicide bomber, except that he didn't become a suicide bomber and is currently living in Germany.
4: Yeah, he's, he's walking around in Germany, I've met him.
2: Then there's a bunch of Chinese Muslims we accidentally picked up during our sweep in Afghanistan. They're an ethnic minority known as the Uyghurs, and they've been battling the communist Chinese since World War II. Conservatives love the Uyghurs, which is why they've been passionately defended by the National Review and the Weekly Standard. After a corporate lawyer named Sabin Willett heard about them, he volunteered to represent a Uyghur named Adel abdul Akim and some others, and he flew to Guantanamo to meet them.
8: The main thing they wanted to talk about and that was so puzzling to them was that the previous May, the military had told them that they were, in their words, innocent. And uh, why were they still here if they were innocent?
2: So, What you're saying is, is that Adel and the other Uyghurs are, in your, in your opinion, have never been members of any kind of al-Qaeda or jihad or anything like that.
8: Yeah, it's not just my opinion. The Defense Department has determined that. That means they were never al-Qaeda, never Taliban, never any of that.
2: When I interviewed Willett, back when the story was first broadcast a year ago, the government said they'd release Adel and the other Uyghurs if only it could find another country to send them to. At the time, there seemed like an obvious solution. Adel could go 90 miles north to Miami, where there's an entire city of anti-communists. Or he could be sent to one of the largest Uyghur expat communities, Washington, D.C. So why didn't that happen? Here's Willett.
8: I'll tell you what I, th- what I think the answer is, although no one from the government would admit this. I think the answer is that if anybody actually met these guys, actually looked at them and took their pictures and, you know, had them on TV shows or the radio, um, they'd be shocked because they've been told for four years that the people at Guantanamo are terrorists and that they're the worst of the worst. And you take a look at Adel, you're going to suddenly realize you've been lied to for a long time. He, he struck me when I first met him like uh, the kind of kid your college-age son would bring home, you know, his roommate, his buddy from college home for the weekend. Um, people who meet Adel for the first time, they, they walk out of the meeting and, and their jaw is a little bit unsprung and they don't say much um, because it's hitting them like a ton of bricks. You know, this guy is in Guantanamo.
2: If it's right, this gets to the heart of habeas. The whole point is that the king shouldn't have the right to just detain somebody because it'd be an embarrassment to have the guy free. The Pentagon has an acronym for people like the Uyghurs. It's pronounced "enlek." It means no longer enemy combatant. But as Willett notes, it should be never was enemy combatant. Since I first talked to Willett for our original broadcast, the White House finally found a refugee center in Albania, where they sent five of the 23 Uyghurs, including Adel. The others are still in Guantanamo, and are classified as enemy combatants. The problem with creating an offshore legal limbo, where there's no habeas proceeding to separate the Al-Qaeda fighter from the comedy writer, comes during interrogation. If we've labeled them as terrorists, then that's how they get treated. Josh Colangelo Bryan is a lawyer at Dorsey & Whitney in New York, who volunteered at Guantanamo. He represents Juma al-Dosari. For a while, the government thought al-Dosari was a recruiter in America for Al-Qaeda, possibly involved in the case known as the Lackawanna Seven. But this is never brought up at his CSRT hearing. Instead, the government simply states that he's Al-Qaeda, and as proof, lists various places he's been. Afghanistan, Bosnia, Azerbaijan, the Pakistan border. Supposedly, he was fighting in some of those places, but the government provides no evidence of that. They don't quote witnesses. Nobody's on record saying he's Al-Qaeda. Here's Colangelo Bryan.
9: What's interesting to me when we talk about what he was doing in uh, that part of the world is the allegation that the U.S. military makes against him that he was, quote, present at Tora Bora, close quote. The military offers no allegations as to when Juma was supposedly in Tora Bora. It says nothing about what supposedly he was doing, simply that at some point in history, he was present in that place. Now, Juma says that he's never been to Tora Bora, and again, even if that allegation is true, frankly, it doesn't prove anything. Uh, Absent some evidence of some involvement in terrorist activity, I simply don't know how you can call someone a terrorist.
2: We tried out many of our new interrogation techniques on Juma al-Dosari. Colangelo Bryan met with him many times and cataloged what was done with him. Aldosari said that Americans forced him to the ground and urinated on him. We put out our cigarettes on him. We shocked him with an electric device. We spat on him. We poured a hot cup of tea on his head. We told him that, quote, we brought you here to kill you. We beat him until he vomited blood. We threatened to have him raped. We dressed him in shorts and left him in a frigid, air-conditioned room. We abandoned him in another room with no water. We invited him to drink from his toilet bowl, which he did. We wrapped him in an Israeli flag. We told him that we would hold him forever, and we told him that we would send him to Egypt to be tortured. On a different day, we chained him to the floor and cut off his clothes while a female MP entered the room we dripped what we said was menstrual blood on his body. When he spat at us, we smeared this blood on his face. We kissed the cross around our neck and said, this is a gift from Christ for you Muslims. We videotaped the entire episode. There's no way to confirm that all this happened to Aldosari, but other prisoners and officials at Guantanamo have described variations of every technique on the list, including the menstrual blood, the Israeli flag, the references to Christianity, the beatings, the sexual humiliation. Aldousseri is interrogated still, about once a month. During one visit last winter, he asked Colangelo Bryan, what can I do to keep myself from going crazy? A few months later, during a meeting, Aldousseri asked to go to the bathroom. Colangelo Bryan and the MP stepped outside the hut and waited. After five minutes, Colangelo Bryan got concerned. He cracked the door open.
9: When I opened the door, the first thing I saw was a pool of blood on the floor in front of me. I then looked up and saw a figure hanging. I yelled to the MPs for help. Uh, They then began to cut down the noose around uh, Juma's neck. It wasn't Aldosari's first suicide attempt. About three weeks later, I was back in Guantanamo. Uh, Juma said to me that he didn't want to kill himself without an outside witness his fear was that if he died and only the military knew nobody would have known what happened
2: of course as we are often told this war is different who wants to be the one that lets somebody go who then turns out to be the next 9-11 hijacker so for the military there's also this other new thing A terrifying calculation that there can be no margin of error. Joe Margulis of the University of Chicago represents a few detainees and has been trying to make sense of what's happened at Guantanamo. If we give them the benefit of the doubt,
1: it is possible, and there's a lot of of evidence to support this, they had no idea who they were going to be capturing, and they thought they might get more uh, serious people people who were more seriously involved. The reality is those people never came to Guantanamo. The, the most serious folks are the ones in CIA custody, of which there are approximately 30, 27, 30, something like that. Those are the people in black sites that we don't even know where they are. The people who of any significance never arrived at Guantanamo, but they didn't know that when the base opened. And they... they said at the time that these were the worst of the worst. They were trained killers. They would gnaw through hydraulic lines to bring down the plane that was flying them to Guantanamo. I mean, they, they used the most inflammatory rhetoric. And it very quickly became apparent that they were just mistaken. And then they were stuck with this PR nightmare. And at the same time, there was this sense, this nagging sense that, well, maybe they are really bad, but we just can't find out. Maybe they're not Afghan dirt farmers, as all appearances seem to be. How do we really know? Maybe we need to use more aggressive techniques to find out. So they kept turning up the heat and using more and more coercive techniques on people who were less and less significant. Meanwhile, our clients are experiencing this really scary deterioration in their mental health as uh, hope gradually uh, disappears. They have become increasingly desperate, and so that's why, we're, that's why there's a hunger strike there going on, uh, an unknown number of people who are starving themselves, who are being force-fed through a tube through their nose that goes into their stomach, uh, and they're only staying alive through that.
2: In this new war, the plan was to build a prison so bleak that the detainees would give up hope and talk. The military was given a mission, and they did a good job. But many prisoners are now moving into year five. If they're Al-Qaeda, detainment is perfectly justified. No one argues that. But think about what these incarcerations are for men wrongfully and indefinitely detained. It's like being buried alive in a coffin. Nobody knows how many of the prisoners are, in fact, the worst of the worst, and how many are innocent. But we have a way to find out. It's called habeas corpus.
0: Check it. Coming up, the most popular poem among prisoners at Guantanamo, or if not the most popular, at least it's very, very popular, we're told. That is in a minute from Chicago Public Radio and Public Radio International. When our program continues. This is American Life, IRA Glass. Our program today, Habeas Shmabeas, Stories from Guantanamo. We're rebroadcasting a show that we first broadcast one year ago. So where do things stand now? Well, in the fall of 2006, this past fall, the president signed a law with solid bipartisan majorities that officially denies habeas rights to Guantanamo prisoners. At this point, the CSRT is still the closest thing that detainees have to a habeas hearing, and the CSRT rules have not changed. Prisoners don't get to see the evidence that's used against them, and evidence obtained through torture can be used. All this is on appeal and will probably end up in the Supreme Court. This actually brings us to Act 2 of our show, Act 2, September 11, 1660. Habeas rights were originally created in England, and in one of the Supreme Court cases on this issue, 175 members of the British Parliament filed a friend-of-the-court brief, an amicus brief, the first time in Supreme Court history that this has happened. And they argued, first of all, that British citizens being held at Guantanamo deserved better than what they were getting in terms of these rights. And they also said, essentially, are you guys nuts? This uh, This is from their brief. The exercise of executive power without possibility of judicial review jeopardizes the keystone of our existence as nations, namely the rule of law. They also pointed out the history of habeas, how after World War II, Winston Churchill wanted to suspend habeas rights for Nazi leaders and just shoot them. And it was the United States which argued for habeas and for trials, which led to the Nuremberg trials. They also uh, finally pointed out how badly it had gone the last time that they, in England, tried to suspend habeas like uh, this. In the 1600s, they write. During the British Civil War, the British created their own version of Guantanamo Bay and dispatched undesirable prisoners to garrisons off the mainland, beyond the reach of habeas corpus relief. The guy who did that was named uh, Lord Clarendon, and in England, one of our regular contributors, John Ronson,
10: decided to look into it. So it turns out that the last person to come up with this exact same way to sidestep habeas corpus is a lord I have never heard of, a not household name lord called Clarendon. Who was he? I went to a professional, Tony McDonnell, who said he'd take me to Clarendon's grave in Westminster Abbey.
7: Yes, we're here in the south aisle of uh, Westminster West Abbey.
10: Notice yeah. we just passed Charles Darwin's uh, yes, grave. Charles Darwin You, said you, here. you mm-hmm. said you weren't showing an American party around and somebody spat, it, at, spat at Charles Darwin's on, grave. On his
7: grave, yes, and wanted to know why he was buried here.
10: And we just passed the spot where Elton John sang candle in the wind at Princess Diana's funeral. Yes,
7: that was in front of Lord Stanhope's memorial in, in in the nave.
10: You have to be famous or a great royalist, or at least someone who worked here like an organist, to be buried here. Tony is a historian and a blue badge guide, an official Westminster tour guide. He took me down corridors and through chambers until we came to a flagstone on the floor. Lord Clarendon's grave. He's in vaulted company. Henry V is buried just to his left and Elizabeth I lies a couple of yards in front of him. Tony explains who Lord Clarendon was.
7: He was, for want of a better word, nowadays he'd probably be called the Prime Minister and he was the main advisor to the King.
10: So Clarendon had this job. He was the King's advisor in the middle of a civil war in which the King was killed. There were two sides... You've got the monarchists and then you've got the Puritans who murdered the king because they saw the kingdom as debauched and decadent. Now, I know you Americans see Puritans as kindly settlers constantly sitting down to Thanksgiving dinner. We see them as bastards. They were religious fundamentalists. In other words, they were...
7: Men who believed that all they had to do was to overthrow the government and the reign of Jesus Christ would come once more among them.
10: So this was a battle of civilization. It, it was a battle of religious ideology. It was most
7: definitely a battle of uh, religious ideology.
10: So as Puritans, were they seen to be kind of crazy religious fundamentalists, these some, people? Some,
7: some of the people were, and they were among the most persecuted after the, the Restoration.
10: The Restoration. This is when the whole sending people away to offshore islands with dubious sovereignty business took place. It was the period after the war. The Puritans had been defeated. A king, Charles II, was restored to power along with his main advisor, Lord Clarendon. Consider what it was like for Clarendon and the monarchists. They'd been in exile for years. Many of their friends and supporters had been locked up or killed. The Puritans had been vicious. They had killed the king. And many of the men who'd done it were still at large, plotting out there. It was a 9/11-style trauma, and Clarendon behaved in a traumatized way.
7: He, he probably was par- paranoid to, to some extent. They, the whole, the whole of the, the new establishment were paranoid. They saw plots ev- everywhere, and there was a feeling of of retribution in in the air. Some people would say they had good reason to be paranoid. Well, these
10: people had done the most unimaginably horrific acts. Yes. They killed the king.
7: They, they had kill, killed the king, and they were capable of anything, is what they, that would have been said. That's why they were put where, where they were, and it was for the, for the safety of all of us, and we're doing you all a favour. Heaven knows what would have happened. They were wicked people, and those were the people were. who were then shipped off by Clarendon.
10: The exact location of Lord Clarendon's Guantanamo is lost to history. It was probably in Jersey or Guernsey, which today are rather nice seaside tax havens for the rich. But suspending habeas corpus didn't work out well for Lord Clarendon. He was impeached. At his impeachment trial, he was accused of sending people away to, quote, "...remote islands, garrisons and other places, thereby to prevent them from the benefit of the law." and to produce precedents for the imprisoning of any other of His Majesty's subjects in like manner. And remember, democracy as we know it is still centuries away. Innocent until proven guilty, one man, one vote, only the most extreme radicals held these views. These were dark times. There were heads on spikes all over London. And still, the people were shocked by Clarendon's disregard for habeas corpus.
7: Pe- people took, took it seriously and they would have bandied it about with each other. This idea that you had to produce somebody and, and accuse them in law in front of their own peers. And it is, and you, the, the parallels are so obvious. When you read the history of habeas corpus and the amount of times it's just been suspended That is what they all always, always do. They say that these people are capable of anything, these people do not hold the same values as as we do, they are out to destroy our way of life. It's more or less the same situation.
10: The one outcome of all of this was the Habeas Corpus Act of 1679, which specifically forbade what Clarendon had done and made it illegal to send a prisoner, quote, into Scotland, Ireland, Jersey, Guernsey, Tangier, or into parts garrisons' islands, or places beyond the seas, which are, or at any time hereafter shall be, within or without, the dominions of his majesty. And forbade it has remained for 330 years. In England, anyway. John
0: Ronson, he does documentaries for the BBC and is the author of the book, Them. Act three, we interrogate the detainees. Yes, the U.S. military had their chance with them in this act. Jack Hitt talks to two former detainees from Guantanamo. One of these guys you've heard a little bit from uh, earlier in our show, Badr Zaman Badr, the guy who ran the satirical magazine in Pashto with his brother in Pakistan. The other guy was 19 when he was picked up, Abdullah al-Niomi, a kid from a well-to-do family in Bahrain. Here's Jack.
2: Abdullah wound up in American custody the way a lot of the men at Guantanamo did. He was a foreigner in Pakistan, and we were offering bounties for guys like that. Remember Marat Karnaz, the guy whose friend was supposedly a suicide bomber, and Juma al-Dosari? Same thing happened to them. In Abdullah's case, he was first taken to Kandahar, to a makeshift prison the US set up at an airbase with about 20 men to a tent
11: when we first got in kandahar i was surprised like i never seen those pictures or those uh, views only in uh, ancient movies like uh, like dark ages we were chained by the legs like shackled and uh, they ordered us to pick up rocks <laughs> can you imagine this they uh, they said you should uh, pick up the rocks on the ground, like put it all together on a pile.
3: There was no water to make ablution or to take a shower.
2: Badr, the satirist, was taken to that same air base at Kandahar.
3: And the MPs were treating us very harshly. We had to be on our knees uh, for long hours and to put uh, our hands on our head. And mostly they they used the word f***ing. And they used to tell us to put our f***ing hands on our f***ing heads and... And they, uh, we didn't like that.
2: In the camps, Badr got separated from his brother, the poet. So he devised a way to find him. The detainees didn't have toilets. Instead, they got a bucket, which got filled up with what Badr modestly calls dirt. Every day, some detainee got chosen to empty the buckets. Badr volunteered.
3: Because I want to meet my brother, to go from tent to tent, then my brother, when I saw my brother and he was giving me his bucket to empty, that was the f- springtime, he said what a spring it is, when there, there are no flowers and instead of the smell of the flowers we have the dirt uh, smell. I can translate it and actually when it's in Pashto, it's, these are really beautiful lines.
2: The sanitary conditions were just as bad, if not worse, for Abdullah. The tent he shared with other detainees was open on all sides and located at the end of the military airstrip. Every takeoff and landing meant a tornado of dirt, the literal kind, blasted through. In the first few days, he heard the other prisoners in the tent talking about their interrogations.
11: They told me that they had uh, electric shots on them, and one of them was uh, threatened to, to be raped. And they took off his pants. And it was like, uh, I was like thinking, well, what, what am I going to do? They took me at night. There was two intrigators. They wanted me to say that I was a terrorist. I told them, no, I, I'm not, and everything. Then they started like uh, pushing me and everything. And then they brought a cigarette that the, the intrigator was smoking. He blew the smoke on my face. Then he br- he came very close, very, very close to my face and brought the cigarette between my eyes. And he said, I swear to God, I'm going to put it in your forehead if you don't tell me what I want to hear. I thought about it. I said, uh, I felt like this is a jungle. And only the strong lives in it. But still there is a small creatures that can live, but not by facing the lions or facing big animals. No, but by maybe hiding or changing their colors as the trees. So we just told him, whatever you want to hear from me, I'm going to tell you. Uh, what do you want me to say? If say that you are a terrorist, you want me to say I'm a terrorist, are you gonna let me go? Are you gonna let me go sleep? Because they, a way of torture, like not keeping me asleep, like keep me awake all the time. So I tell them, okay, I'm gonna tell you whatever you want. Yeah, I'm a terrorist and go tell your bosses. And they left me.
2: This is not how he thought things would go with the Americans. In fact, back when he was being held in a Pakistan jail, when he found out that Americans would be taking them, he was relieved. He told the other prisoners it was good news. He knew America. He knew how the people were.
11: And I lived in so many places like Europe, and, uh, in England, in uh, Germany, and France. But the difference was uh, in the States. Everywhere you go, they welcome you. Like when you go in the supermarket. Everybody goes like, how are we doing, and everything. That's the thing that was in my mind. I was like, please, oh, everything's going to be fine. They're going to understand.
2: So how did he know so much about American supermarkets? Well, in 1994, he came to America for the World Cup finals. In fact, Abdullah's been here a lot. He's been downhill skiing in the Midwest. He attended Old Dominion University in Virginia for a while, and has taken other trips, too.
11: And in '96, I was in uh, Disneyland. We are in Orlando. <laughs> for spring, pre- uh, sp- uh, spring break, I was in Daytona Beach with uh, <laughs> some of my friends.
2: You were in Daytona Beach for spring break?
11: Yeah, it was uh, <laughs> year 2000. Uh huh. Bikers week. <laughs> I remember the guys, uh, young guys. Standing by the sidewalk, having the signs for the cars who was passing. Right. Some expressions written in it and show us.
2: Oh, show. oh right. Yeah. Ah, yes, that, uh, that expression, the show us your... Yeah, that
11: expression. That's the most I remember about Daytona.
2: So a year after seeing the sights at Daytona Beach... Abdullah found himself facing an American interrogator in Kandahar.
11: I got shocked. I got shocked when uh, the first interview, like, uh, cursing me up and down, cursing my father, cursing my family, cursing my country, cursing uh, my government, everything. Why? That that was the question I wanted to know. Like, uh, what's going on? Like, uh, do I know you? What do you have against me? What do they do to
2: you? Botter had learned of the West from more scholarly sources. He's a big fan of the Canterbury Tales and Gulliver's Travels. And he also knew about the Geneva Conventions and spoke up when he realized they weren't going to apply.
3: Actually, our complaint was that they were not accepting us as prisoner of war. They were not giving us those rights. And uh, actually, they were just uh, running away from uh, American legal system. Mm-hmm. I mean... I have, I have told my, my interrogators many times, if we are really guilty, why don't they put us on trial in American courts?
2: Finally, Badr and Abdullah were each taken out of the camps at Kandahar and put on a plane to Guantanamo. Remember, this is an international flight from Afghanistan to Cuba, over 20 hours long.
11: We were handcuffed, and the handcuffs was tied to our stomachs, and there's a chain connected to our legs, other detainees next to you like stuck to you
3: they are used uh, to put goggles on our
11: head and we had masks that we can hardly breathe
3: we could not hear we could not see we can even not touch so they had to
11: stop our senses completely to have hearing seeing tasting smelling those things uh, only human can have
2: Once they got to Guantanamo, both Bader and Abdullah described being stripped naked, medically examined, and then put into cages until a new round of interrogations began.
3: Mostly, they used to ask questions about the religious organizations and uh, uh, how they get money and why why people hate Americans and so and so. And uh, there have been even stu- stupid questions. Uh, like? And uh, yeah, <laughs> the, there have been stupid questions that if we have seen Osama Bin Laden, or Mullah Omar are. Uh, If we intend to attack Americans...
11: Yes, uh, as if I know Osama bin Laden. I was, like, shocked, like, uh, to 19 years old.
2: Abdullah and Badr, by the way, arrived at different times at the base and never knew each other. But they both described meeting lots of ordinary people, farmers, teachers, cab drivers, who were also sold to the Americans. Abdullah talked to one guy who was sold by his own father-in-law. Badr met men who had never even heard of Osama bin Laden. Abdullah was originally arrested while traveling in Pakistan. A man offered him a meal and a place to rest and later turned him over to the army for the bounty. Abdullah says he saw the money change hands at the jail. Once in American custody, he was accused of traveling to Afghanistan and proclaiming his desire to carry out jihad.
11: Sometimes, interrogators want to put the stress on us. They come and ask me, like, do you want to go home? they don't want to take me home but they're just asking mm-hmm. like to make you like angry and nervous that uh you'll never go home and keep telling you this thing but uh, in response well i i tell them the same thing no thanks i don't want to go home i'm okay here but, uh, but, uh, i like you so much and i don't wanna, <laughs> i don't want to leave you <laughs> <laughs>
2: Now, did they just, did they think you were a smart ass? I mean, it's, how did they react to that? (laughs) They they got
11: surprised the first time, but then they got used to it because everybody say it. even if, uh, for example, stop you from food, stop you from sleeping, stop you from uh, talking, just, I don't know why, you just keep smiling.
2: So much of what we hear about Guantanamo is about the harsh treatment there. But of course, like any place, the days mostly pass in boredom. The interrogators might be rough, but the MPs and guards who had to spend time with the detainees sometimes would get comfortable and start talking to the prisoners.
11: They asked me, Tell me the truth, are you a terrorist or not? They were told that I am a terrorist, but they still ask me. Why? Because of doubt. In their hearts. They still have doubt. Those people are not. They don't seem like uh, as we heard. And then we start talking and talking and talking. Most of the guards, they told me that um, when I first came here, I was trained that everybody over here is like monsters. They're going to jump from the cages and they're going to like uh, tear you up and everything. They said, we thought it's different. We thought that the American uh, forces captured you in a battle or something. So some, of, some people, like, they are forced to treat us bad, but you can see, you can tell from their eyes. And some, they feel like uh, this is not the right thing to do. You feel this is uh, wrong. They told me themselves. Some of them told me, like, if I don't follow orders, I'm going to be in your place. I really miss them now.
2: pass the time, the prisoners would sing together or try out new poems they'd written. They developed a secret postal system for passing notes and photos and figured out how to talk to each other through the air conditioning vents. Sometimes the guards and prisoners would hold little competitions, like the styrofoam cup challenge. The object was to turn the cup inside out without cracking it. The guards went first.
11: They spent hours and hours and hours and they came ba- back with... Uh, well, they couldn't do it. They said, okay, let's try to flip the cup underwater. They Mm. tried, and it didn't work. Then the detainees said, okay, we're going to do it for you. The detainees did it. They flipped the cup inside out, like totally inside out. You could read uh, the brand of the cup inside the cup instead of outside.
2: What was the brand?
11: It was Dart. Dart? Yeah, one Uh, was Dart, and the other was Oklahoma. Yeah, community of Oklahoma for blinds.
2: Since pen and paper were forbidden, Botter's brother wrote his poetry by scratching the words into styrofoam cups with his fingernails. After a year, they were allowed to use pens and to read books. Abdullah read David Copperfield. Botter and his brother composed some 25,000 lines of verse. The other inmates memorized the best of them. The most popular couplet went like this:
3: It says, "Jail uh, bad So these are the Pashto lines. It means they bring good and bad people to the same jail, and uh, uh, there is no oil and salt in the in the uh, in the rice."
2: Get that? There is no oil or salt in the rice.
3: (laughs) It's really funny in Pashto. If you just slay this cassette to any Pashto speaker in your country, he will really lie there.
2: Finally, one day, four years after he left Pakistan, Abdullah was pulled aside by a military officer who had news. Abdullah was going home. Abdullah says he was asked by a government lawyer, a major, to sign a contract promising not to join a terrorist group and giving the U.S. permission to rearrest him at any time. He refused to sign. Other detainees say they were shown similar letters and also refused to sign, believing this was just another trick. Did they ever explain why they were letting you go? No. So, but they, they told you they had made a mistake in the end.
11: The government's lawyer, he didn't say a mistake by the like vocabulary of mistake, like he didn't say mistake, but he said, we picked you up as an enemy combatant, but it turned out that you're not one. We don't say that you're an enemy combatant. He just uh, gave me an example of a mistake, but he didn't say we made a mistake.
2: And just as suddenly, Abdullah was on an airplane and back in Bahrain. He was quickly ushered past the news media and into a room where he saw his family.
11: They greeted me, they welcomed me, they hugged me and everything. Then they took me home i didn't tell them anything everybody's crying i left my sister she was like uh, very very young about five six years i didn't know her when i saw her she was like a lady
2: when you when you saw your brothers and your father what was that
11: like Have you ever heard the expression, home, sweet home?
2: (laughs) Yes, I have, actually.
11: (laughs) Yeah, of course. It's exactly, that's the, like, uh, that's the best time to say home, sweet home.
2: Americans are going to think that because you were at Guantanamo Bay, that you were a terrorist, and, and that everybody there was. Yeah. What would you say to them?
11: I would say, if and if I were an angel, I would still be a terrorist to them because it's the thing that they want. People don't want to take the responsibilities of their mistakes, that's it. And they want to put it on others. It's like uh, slaughtering uh, a sheep, for example. And when the sheep kept shaking and the blood splitting all over the place they would scream at it at the at the sheep and say you're a bad sheep bad bad sheep because your blood came on my my clothes or my dress you know what i'm saying they would take you maybe torture you or maybe kill you or put you under so much stress and circumstance and then they would say you're a bad person because you've been through those things why did you put me in those things in the first place.
2: In the years Abdullah was gone, his parents moved to a new house, a big house with lots of rooms. But there was no bedroom for him. His old clothes were gone. They thought he would never come home. He says it's like he's come back from the dead.
0: Jacket. In the years since we first broadcast this show, Abdullah's gotten married. He has a six-month-old son. He's entered business school in Bahrain. The other detainee that Jack talked to, Badr Zaman Badr, is back in Pakistan. He and his brother wrote a book in Pashto about what happened to them in detention in Kandahar and Guantanamo. Because of this, Badr's brother has been detained by the Pakistan government. In this past year, about 200 detainees have been released. About 385 are still in Guantanamo. 38 of them are currently classified as NLEX, no longer enemy combatants. That is, they've been found to be completely innocent, but they're still in custody. In September 2006, after criticism that not many truly dangerous prisoners were at Guantanamo, 14 high-value al-Qaeda prisoners were moved to Guantanamo from CIA black sites. And finally, just this week, the Justice Department filed petitions in federal court to try to curtail how often detainees can talk to their American lawyers, guys like Joe Margulies and the other attorneys that you heard this hour. An affidavit by a Navy lawyer, Commander Patrick McCarthy, complained, among other things, that those lawyers were providing information to the news media about the detainees. Well, our program is produced today by Sarah Koenig and myself with Alex Bloomberg, Diane Cook, Jane Feld, Amy O'Leary, and Lisa Pollack. Our senior producers, Julie Snyder. Production out from Sam Hallgren, Seth Lynn, Thea Chaloner, and Tommy Andres. Music out from Jessica Hopper. Special thanks today to Mark Falkoff and Jack Belkin. This American Life is brought to you by Audible.com, where you can download audiobooks, magazines, newspapers, and radio shows, including archives from the last 10 years of this show, audible.com slash Life. This American Life is distributed by Public Radio International, WBEZ Management Oversight for our program by Mr. Tori Malatia.
8: You know what he always says about us. If anybody actually met these guys, actually looked at them and, you know, had them on TV shows, um, they'd be shocked.
0: I'm Aaron Glass. Back next week with more stories of This American Life.
6: PRI Public Radio International.